This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Hello and welcome to Heritage Matters, a program brought to you by the Southern Heritage Trust and sponsored by Ryman Healthcare. I'm Dougal Stevenson. In this program, Bill Southworth looks at a building fire in early Dunedin which had disastrous consequences. Gregor Campbell continues his series on brilliant barrister Alf Hanlon, and Judy Southworth studies the history of local breweries. The recent obliteration of much of Lake Ohau village showed how quickly fires can turn into roaring infernos. This was the case in Dunedin in September 1879 when the Ross building on the lower side of the octagon caught fire. There was a large loss of life. Arson was suspected, and a few days after the tragedy, a murder charge was laid. This report from Bill Southworth. Where the Regent Theatre, the Athenaeum and bars and restaurants nestle today at the bottom of the octagon, in 1879 was a large three-storied structure known as the Ross Building. At the street level there were shops and a café owned by William Waters called the Chaffe Chantant, a rough and ready dive which had a bad reputation. Above it was a rabbit warrant of apartments and rooms where more than 50 people slept each night. Some were drunken patrons sleeping it off but most were respectable families and young single tenants. The fire broke out about half past two on a Monday morning and was said to have started in the Café Chantant, which was on the ground floor nearest Stewart Street. The fire quickly spread to the top floor and by the time the rather tardy fire brigade arrived, it was well alight. The hoses of the brigade had little effect on the brick building and were not powerful enough to effectively fight the fire on the top floor. As the Otago Daily Times reported next morning, Above the noise and shouting and clanging of the bell could be heard the pitiful and heart-rending shrieks of women and men cut off from the only means of exit, the staircase. And it was indeed sorrowful to hear these piercing cries of terror without any efficient means of rendering assistance. One of the persons seen to come out of the building was a girl, who jumped from one of the top-story windows to the pavement. It is stated that a blanket was held for her, but that she missed it. She was injured to some extent and was taken to hospital. On the second floor, above the cafe, were rooms used by William Waters for the purpose of his business. Other rooms were occupied by various people, a book agent, a music teacher, and people used them as sleeping rooms, getting their meals about town. Other rooms on the top floor were occupied by young working men and servant girls. Also on this floor, and furthest away from where the fire started, was the apartment of Robert Wilson, editor of the Otago Witness, who lived there with his wife, six children and a maidservant, all but two of whom would perish in the fire. The two who survived were Louisa Wilson and her sister Lily. Rescuers were able to reach them in time, but both were injured and taken to hospital. It was days before people could bring themselves to tell the girls that the rest of their family had all died. In all, 12 people were to die in the fire. Two of the bodies were never identified. Of the 12 people who lost their lives, the Wilson family of Robert, his wife, and four of his six children made up half the total. 
The tragedy was one of the worst Otago had experienced, and according to the Otago Daily Times, passions were high the next day. In spite of the wretchedly wet weather which prevailed in the city yesterday, a constantly coming and going crowd of people, numbering a couple or three hundred, was gathered about the scene of the fire, and the slightest scrap of information was eagerly listened to and canvassed. The building came in for a large share of disapproval. It was a kind of rabbit warren on a large scale on the upper floors, built without a brick partition throughout to stay the flames. And several of the occupants of the building had often entertained fears for their safety in the event of a fire breaking out. Mr. Wilson, to our own knowledge, had often expressed an opinion that a fire in Ross's buildings would result in loss of life. He was but too true a prophet. Given the large loss of life, questions were soon raised about the time it took for the fire brigade to arrive. The Otago Daily Times again. The fire brigade did not arrive upon the scene until perhaps 20 minutes after the first gleam of fire, or quarter of an hour after the alarm was given. But this is not to be wondered at, for from some unaccountable reason the bell did not ring out the alarm for a very considerable time. The brigade could know nothing of the fire till they heard the bell. When they did hear it, we think the majority of them showed great alacrity in getting to the station and running some of the lighter gear around. The heavy gear they could not get out without horses, and these were a long time coming. And when they did come, the harness was broken, and delays occurred from this cause. They did, however, what they did with energy and spirit, and worked as they always do with their whole hearts in the endeavour to stop the flames and save property. The saving of life, however, should have been the primary consideration. It is seen now, at any rate, that it should have been. The brigade and its officers do not appear to have sufficiently recognised that at the time. A fire escape with wheels on, which was available, may have saved lives by reaching to the top storey but horses couldn't be found to pull it, and for some strange reason, the many men who volunteered to haul it were denied permission to do so. The Littleton Times sent what it called a specialist to cover the fire. His report made a series of allegations about the way the Dunedin papers had reported the fire. Finding that the time could be spared, I decided last Friday night to run down to Dunedin to make personal inquiries into the recent disastrously fatal fire in the Octagon, the news of the occurrence of which flashed by telegraph to the remotest parts of New Zealand and Australia, sent in a thrill of mingled horror and indignation throughout the colonies. Horror at the shocking fate which befell twelve human beings, and indignation at the carelessness, blundering, and incompetency, if, alas, not worse, which apparently were at the bottom of the catastrophe. Remembering how well Dunedin is supplied with daily journals, some of them ably conducted, it might have seemed unnecessary that a special reporter should have come from such a distance as Christchurch. But even at the risk of offending some of my confrères of the quill, I must say there existed in my mind an uneasy feeling that the whole story was not being told. I knew something of the character of the building, and it struck me the Dunedin press kept back certain disgraceful facts, 
bearing in mind the petty jealousy that a section of this community displays towards centers of population more favorably situated. It seemed not unlikely that, ashamed of the absurd building regulations in force and of the inefficiency of the fire brigade, a wisely discreet silence on these points was being maintained. Rightly or wrongly, these considerations induced me personally to institute inquiries on behalf of the Littleton Times. And within a very few hours of my arrival here, I had proof that I had not been very far wrong. The allegations made about the poor local press coverage by the visiting reporter were strongly rebutted in the Evening Star of the following day. We have read and reread the special's report but have failed to discover in it the slightest attempt to prove his assertion that the Dunedin press kept back disgraceful facts. But we do protest against the insinuation made against the local papers in the opening paragraph of this report, and against the misstatements. Whether the Café Chantant had ruffianly patrons, the police are best able to say. But we are inclined to think that the statement that the bachelors' quarters in Ross's buildings were the scene of nightly orgies will be resented as a gross libel. Five days after the fire, the funeral of the six dead of the Wilson family and three other victims took place. It was estimated that 10,000 people lined the streets to watch the funeral cortege pass by and that 2,000 accompanied the coffins to the southern cemetery. The following day, the rest of the victims were buried with their caskets being followed to the cemeteries by large numbers of people. In the inquest which followed, after about five minutes' deliberation, the jury returned the following verdict. The fire at the Ross buildings in the octagon was the willful act of William Waters. Waters was the owner of the Café Chantant and the rooms above it and stood to collect a large insurance payout. The coronial jury's finding was tantamount to a verdict of willful murder against Waters, and he was immediately committed to trial at the Supreme Court on charges of murder and arson. The trial against Waters was brought to a close shortly after midnight on October the 15th. At the close of the case for the prosecution, the foreman of the jury asked the judge if the jury could give its verdict at once without waiting to hear evidence or the judge's summing up. His honour refused and the case for the defence was heard. After his honour had summed up, the jury brought in a verdict of not guilty on the charge of murder. Mr J.W. Elliott, foreman of the jury, against William Waters, stated that everyone had been criticised for the octagon fire except the proper person, and that was the man who had set fire to the building. The jury would not convict a man on the evidence given at the trial for an offence for which he could have gone to the gallows, and he thought the public generally would share that opinion. Three months later, the Dunedin Herald carried a story which said that William Waters of the Octagon Fire Celebrity has received his insurance money and has gone away, leaving a large number of inquiring friends. This is Bill Southworth reporting for Heritage Matters. In the first half of the 20th century, Alf Hanlon was regarded as probably the most brilliant barrister operating in the Dunedin courts. His memoir is full of interesting and quirky cases, ranging from important murder trials to more mundane but very amusing ones. Gregor Campbell reads from the memoir. 
In lawyer Alfred Hanlon's early days, as he recounts in his memoirs, things did not always go very smoothly. I start from him discussing a small matter in the police court. In the police court too, at this time, I was made to realise that the way of the beginner is hard. I had been instructed to defend two men charged with assaulting a publican. When the case was called, the complainant stepped into the witness box and said he wished to withdraw the complaint, and the two accused were thereupon discharged. I had taken the precaution, however, of issuing a summons for assault against the hotel keeper, and his case was then called. I undertook to withdraw the case on condition that the defendant paid the costs of the proceedings. I won't pay a penny of costs. Not a penny, he roared amid laughter. Then he seemed to see me for the first time. You're a new chum, he said to the accompaniment of more laughter. I don't know you, but you don't look like a lawyer to me. Have you ever read any of Grattan's works? Very well, I said. If you won't pay the costs, we'll go on with the case. I think I could manage you if we went outside, he retorted. And to my chagrin, the courtroom rang with laughter again. Finally, the case was adjourned until the following day, and as he left the court, the defendant said, turning to me, If you come along to my place any time, there'll always be a spot of whiskey for you. Next morning, he paid the costs in full, and the case was withdrawn. The trial following Hanlon's most famous, that when he defended Minnie Dean on a charge of murder, was much less important, but he found it amusing enough to add to his memoirs. Following on this trial, I was engaged in a much less important but very amusing case in which two men were indicted for conspiracy to defraud. It was simply a variation of the old-fashioned confidence trick, but it had its unusual twists. One of the accused was a youth of 19 years, and it was he who produced the victim to be plucked, a farmer's boy from the Tokomarero district who had just arrived in town with about £10 in his pocket. They met on the railway station just after the train from the south had arrived, and it was not long before the accused had ascertained that the boy was temporarily out of work. With the customary welcome of the confidence trickster, he undertook to find employment for the boy on a sheep station. In fact, he'd come up to Dunedin, he said, to get two men, and as long as his uncle had not already engaged anyone, a job would be available. Together, they went to the old Brigade Hotel in George Street, which the accused said was run by his uncle. It was some time before uncle could be found, and there was a lot of going in and out of the place by the accused before the landlord relative arrived. The boy preferred two shillings for drinks all round, but at this stage one of uncle's little idiosyncrasies came to light. He had been so long in the public house line that he never took a drink unless it was a case of a bobbin and the winner shouts. And so the stage was set for the plucking. Uncle left the room and returned with a box of dice, throwing a half-sovereign on the table with a remark that he had no smaller coin. He rattled the dice significantly, and in a twinkling of an eye, two more half-sovereigns lay with it. Uncle threw the dice and got a high number. Then the two youths followed, each getting about the same but very much below Uncle's figure. But Uncle did not want the young fellow's money, so he left the spoils on the table. The accused suggested a sovereign in and throw for the lot, and Uncle won again. Three times, Uncle gave the boys a chance to recoup themselves, 
but every time luck favoured him, and he won. By this time, each had contributed £4.10 to a poll that had assumed sizable proportions, and it was proposed that they should all put another £2 in and throw for the lot again. The boy from the country was beginning to become suspicious by this time and refused to contribute further, although he was prepared to throw for the pool as it stood. And for the sixth time in succession, Uncle won again. The complainant was now sure he was being fleeced and put out his hand to take up his money, but he was told he could not do that, as Uncle had won it all. So Uncle picked up the money, bought the youths a drink, and after unsuccessfully attempting to sell the complainant some tweed for a suit, he advised him to go to the rabbit factory at Dunback and see if he could get a job. There was no talk about work on a sheep station, and very soon Uncle departed to be seen no more. Complaints were made to the police, and Uncle and his youthful accomplice were arrested. In their possession was found a false die which had two sixes, two fives, and two fours on it a cigar case capable of being converted into a dice box, an ordinary set of dice, a pack of cards specially prepared for the three-card trick, and in the cigar case were found not cigars, but several cards adapted to cheating purposes. It was a hopeless case from the outset, and the attempt to produce an alibi by one of the prisoners served merely to make matters worse. There was nothing I could say in their defence or in the face of their records, an extenuation, and the jury seemed to have no doubt whatever about the facts. After a retirement barely half an hour, they returned with a verdict of guilty against both the accused, and each was sentenced to two years' imprisonment with hard labour. I'm Gregor Campbell for Heritage Matters. Dunedin has a rich history of beer brewing. Over the years and right up to the present, it's produced a remarkable number of beer entrepreneurs. Judy Southworth has been researching the history of these brewers and presents the following report. Captain James Cook was the first brewer in New Zealand. He produced a beer to prevent scurvy by using branches of spruce and what he called tea plants. These were boiled up for three or four hours and with molasses then added, along with some water and either yeast, beer, or similar fermented product, was left for only a few days before being drunk. In 1880, Dunedin was known as the brewery capital of New Zealand. That year, it produced 1.2 million gallons of beer, a quarter of New Zealand's total production. Beer had become the working man's favourite drink. Many brewers were Irish Catholics, and the Catholic Church was supportive of their trade. Ales have been around for a long time. Evidence of grain-based brewing has been found in burial sites from around 3000 BC, and the ancient Egyptians and Greeks brewed it. Women were the brewers in early England, and the ale was consumed by all social classes and by children as well as adults. The male brewers were monks, and the monasteries catered for travellers. By the 15th century, hops had been added, and this extended the life of the brews. Men became involved, and the term beer specified an ale to which hops had been added. Breweries were mainly village ones, and it wasn't until the Industrial Revolution that larger breweries emerged. 
Early settlers in Otago came from a society where beer drinking was a fact of life. In 1853, the Irish Burks brothers set up a large brewery in the West Harbour. The site of this brewery is now called Burks. The positioning was because of the good quality water in this area. This water supply became the main one for domestic use here and in nearby St Leonard's. In 1872, the brewery was destroyed by fire. The cause was inconclusive, but thought to be perhaps from a passing train or from the fires used in these early breweries. By 1861, there were three breweries operating in Dunedin. Then, during the gold rush, many more were established with a wide range of nationalities running them. American, Danish, English, German, French, Scots and large numbers of Irish. 1861 to 66 were busy years for Dunedin brewers. The major brewers were Wilson's Well Park, Marshall and Copeland's Water of Leith, Joel's Red Lion, Strawn's Victoria and Burke's Otago Brewing. All employed large numbers. With Vogel's Public Works and Immigration Act in 1870, Dunedin's population increased and more breweries emerged, Albion, Spates, McGavins and Briggs. But the depression of the 1880s closed many of the smaller brewers. The amount of beer produced grew, however, reflecting the efficiency of the larger brewers. The smaller brewers were disadvantaged by lack of finance to expand their premises and send their beer out of Otago to the goldfields, the Pacific Islands and Australia. The larger brewers had travellers who could solicit orders. The smaller breweries couldn't buy hotels to tie them to their product. Destruction by fire was a problem, as the destruction of the Burke's Brewery showed. The buildings were wooden, and their process used direct firing. Later, Morris Joel, with his Red Lion Brewery, was the first to use steam in place of direct fires. Dunedin had an advantage over northern cities. Its cooler climate allowed faster cooling of the wort, the mixture before fermentation. This was necessary to prevent airborne microorganism contamination. The sighting of breweries in Dunedin was greatest from Stewart Street to the Leith because of the good quality water in this area. Spring or well water was preferred as it didn't have to be filtered through sand, charcoal and chalk. Also important was good quality barley for the malting process. Seed was imported during the 1860s. The byproduct of brewing, the spent grains, were usually sold as stock food. Some brewers kept pigs for this reason. Breweries contributed much to the economic growth of Otago. They employed large numbers, made large numbers of barley growth necessary and paid large amounts of tax. They also produced an alternative to the often rough and nasty brews of whisky, brandy, rum and so on. By the mid-1880s, most of the smaller breweries had closed. The larger breweries were turning out a good brew and at a lower price. With the liberalisation of the Licensing Act in 1989, small breweries have proliferated. They produce an increasing range of often quirky beers, the range of alcoholic content has also widened from very low to very high. Earlier I spoke of the suitability of Dunedin's cold climate and allowing a fast cooling of the wort, this faster cooling reducing the likelihood of contamination. There's a current take on this. 
Sour beers are becoming popular, and these are produced by allowing wild yeast strains or bacteria into the brew. One way of developing sour beer is by leaving it outside overnight in a large open vessel to pick up wild yeast from the air. Wellington Brewers' garage project have been developing a beer using this process. They put the beer into open pans near open windows overnight, then move the brew downstairs to oxygenate and ferment in barrels. The result is a slightly tart beer. The airborne yeasts vary from region to region and have now been domesticated by brewers so that they're compliant. This process is said to be the oldest form of brewing before fermentation and yeasts were discovered to be part of the process. Prior to this, much prayer was relied upon for a good brew, and God's intervention was thought to produce a good beer. For anyone interested in the details of the many early brewers around Otago, Frank Leckie's publication, Otago Brewers Past and Present, gives a comprehensive coverage. I found it invaluable in researching this piece. This is Judy Southworth for Heritage Matters. This programme, which will be repeated on Sunday at 7pm, is kindly sponsored by Ryman Healthcare and brought to you by the Southern Heritage Trust. Ryman Healthcare prides itself on offering some of the most resident-friendly terms in New Zealand. Ryman Healthcare's Francis Hodgkins and Yvette Williams Retirement Villages in Dunedin offer the very best of retirement living and care. For more information and to discuss your retirement living options, please phone Kate on 455-7936. Ryman Healthcare. Supporting Southern Heritage Trust and the Heritage Matters Program. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand on the air.